Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, a podcast where we talk about plants, pipettes, and you know what? Sometimes we talk about politics, guys. Suck it up, <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, hi, I'm Joram and I feel no shame for talking about politics. Um, Joram actually doesn't feel shame about a lot of things and some of these things he should feel shame about and he does not feel the shame. <laughs> Yeah, but speaking about politics in my own show is not one of the things that I feel shame about. And I, I will mean, never. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we do it wrong, definitely tell us. Like if we say things that are not great. Yeah, <laughs> always, always anyway. tell us, always give us feedback. Um, but still, um, it's our show. <laughs> we do. Please. Um, also, there's a really nice skip button. So you can skip through to the part where we actually talk about the science if that's what yeah. you think. But I mean, honestly, at this point, if you're here for the science, I, I don't, I don't know what to say. Sorry, we've <laughs> we've misled you massively with our title and I don't know thematic tags on your podcatcher of choice. It's too bad. Yeah, it's more about that we love plants, but we also love talking about other things uh, other than plants. So it's more like a general science review, loosely based on plants. I think that should be our new um, tagline of the of the podcast rants sometimes about ca cats mostly no sometimes about plants mostly about cats but you can yeah as you said like you can skip ahead if you want to um in some podcasts you can even pre-select which chapters you want to listen to which i find nice then i can like sort of skim through the topics and then i skip the ones where i know that i don't care when they talk about cars or whatever i can just say like no thank you um, yeah, and there's example, nothing wrong like, with that. Like this, this week is in fact a paper week, and people have told me that they don't care about the papers, mostly my own family members, and that's fine to skip through the paper and just hear exactly. what's like. You know what? My mum wants to hear what's happening with my life. I don't call her, but I do a podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> then skip through the paper, mother. It's fine. Yeah, I, I I think it's important to 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 say that like we do sort of what we want on here because we like it's our show and we want to do what's fun, but it's also. You, as the listener, you can decide what you listen to. And if you yeah, feel like do you, you don't care, to. it's absolutely fine to skip. We won't look at you harshly. If we won't you skip even ahead. know. Like, yeah, I first mean, you're a mind because know. he has technical skills, but no. me, like, no, we have I mean, no way honestly, a couple of weeks ago, I changed my, my phone settings into Spanish because I'm trying to learn Spanish. And now I, I don't know what's happening any of the time in my technology. Like, I mean, I don't think I'm learning more Spanish, but I'm definitely more confused about what's going on every time something pops up on my phone. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, obviously, like, obviously what I wanted for these times right now is more confusion in my life. That was an active choice that I made is to like make things more disorienting and, and abnormal. I went with that even option. Even less at home. It's just like, not even my <laughs> phone is home anymore. I'm just completely <laughs> stranded in life. Yeah, um, hopefully it will eventually be helpful. Um, yeah. What have you been up to, Yoram? I know some things you've been up to, but fill yeah. us in. I had two sci-com science communication related things in the last couple of days. Um, one of them was very, very good, and one not so much. Um, the good one was where where you talked about me, wasn't it? It was where I talked about you. I talked about this thing here about plants and pipettes. I I gave a workshop um, for uh, sort of an academy slash summer school thing, although it's end of summer. But uh, for um, young researchers who were ho having a week long workshop and sort of developing their science and and coming up with new project ideas. And part of that was um, thinking about science communication as part of research. And I was giving them an introduction to science communication and was talking a lot about plants and pipettes and what we do here um the learnings that we had the 
the things to expect. I talked a little bit about the numbers that you expect when when you start a project. And um, I mean, it took for us about a year to really take off. And I recently heard the same thing from a completely different source where they also said like between 12 and 24 months is usually what you, the time that it takes where you just put stuff online until it gets some sort of following or attention. And you just have okay. to get through that. Like you just have to get through the first year. Keep on doing shit for... yeah two years and then maybe somebody will look at it apart from your direct family members yeah and then that's it nice. will and that's what we saw as well now i mean now we have more people um constantly slowly increasing our audience and that's really nice and i'm happy that we pushed through the first year yeah so that was a fun thing that was that was really good it was in front of people but it was um, this very good sort of hygiene discipline it was in a large lecture room but there was only about like 10 to 15 attendants um in a room for 50 people but that was on purpose so they had like lots of free space mm -hmm. between each other like two seats between each other and an empty row in front of them and behind them um so but still i could talk to people directly and that was a lot of fun um and i think people enjoyed it from from what i've heard and the other thing is that i was uh, I, i also took part in a conference um that happened from monday until today and that was a completely digital conference and you've done that before right like for me it was a first yeah 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 I mean, it's 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 much more exhausting, right? Because you're constantly although I don't watching. know. No, I found it like I I pulled out my yoga mat in front of my computer, and then I I was doing like some exercise while I was listening to some of the talks, and I could not do that in a real conference. And I always felt like at the end of a real conference, I was completely out of my mind. I it was it's just exhausted on all levels, like physical, mentally, everything. And with with at home, I had the feeling I could much more easily take breaks like recharging breaks um or more efficient recharging breaks because so I the, don't have the like one i went to all of the live stuff was um discussion sessions which mm. was like a really like it's good to have that opportunity but it meant that you had to watch all the pre-recorded stuff beforehand mm. so the actual time to attend the conference was like three or four times longer than the the four days of the conference and i found that very very oh, yeah. hard to navigate especially because i mean i think if I think also it's a problem with my current job that I'm doing like editing. So I want to look at a wide range of research. I think ideally that would work very well if you had a quite specific topic that you're interested in because you could kind of focus the time on seeing those sessions. But because I was like trying to stick my finger in every pie, it's it was just like I was kind of awkwardly spread across things and feeling like I was constantly playing catch up. And that was a bit, yeah, yeah a bit tricky. And it was also in a different time zone for me. So I was kind of like starting at five And then what doing until like nine, you know, like nine to five, my normal work, five to nine, my conference work kind of weird thing. And that was, yeah. But yeah. anyway. Yeah, I imagine that that must be very exhausting. For I mean, this one, um, they had only one pre-recorded talk. And I have to say, I would prefer more pre-recorded talks that are sort of edited to be short and on point and then have more mm -hmm. time instead for discussion. Because now... Um, They had 45-minute slots, and very often they talk for 35 or 40 minutes. Then they took a few minutes to read through what's happening in the chat, and then they answered one question. Um, and that didn't feel, feel very re rewarding. Um, yeah, I think that's one of the things about the virtual conferences, because you don't have that time to go and like meet the person at a coffee break afterwards. You do need to set aside a lot of those like specially designed interaction times yeah. in some way. Yeah, there's actually like I want to do kind of a weird related plug because there's something that just came out 
I guess even today. So we're recording on Wednesday. Um, it's from Nature Communications. Actually, one of my work peeps was involved in making this. Um, and it's navigating virtual conferences as a junior researcher. And this has kind of um, three different junior researchers talking about how they've gone with attending virtual conferences and it has a lot of kind of the things that Yoram's mentioned about how to engage and you know pre-recording and, and different things you can do but I think it's not only good for junior researchers who are thinking of going to virtual conferences like for for tips and hints it's also good if you're planning a conference because they kind of flag some things about how um, the organization should work and then it's also good if you're a senior researcher because it's kind of highlighting some issues that where senior researchers will have to work harder in order to you know facilitating that network possibility for junior researchers so i think there's there's some good information in there mm, yeah yeah i think I, now that the conference is over i i'm still unsure if i would have preferred one in person um, at the same time i have to say that the one that i attended from the content wasn't really engaging and was um like wasn't too amazing there, there was hardly anything that uh that was new to me it was on a very basic superficial level and but i would it might have been also because you've been doing that job for a little while now yeah, but it was, so it, it, was if it was aimed at professionals but anyway so my point is that if that would have been an in-person conference and i would have left home for like three days and left my wife alone with the kid um, I would have felt even worse about it. I mean, now I had some sort of family time that I had to give up and to to watch the conference, but I could immediately turn it off and be there with my family. Mm. And I could not do that with a real conference. So for things where you're sort of on the edge whether or not it's worth it to attend, um, I find a virtual conference to be a great enabler because then I can attend more conferences where I'm sort of just partially interested because I can mm -hmm. very easily get, get out of it, um, whereas I would not do this with in-person conferences. I would not just like attend for the fun a conference in a different city and see if there's maybe two talks in there that are interesting. This has also come up um, on this article that we'll, we'll link in the notes, but also like time and time again, this idea that, I mean, at the moment we're not just doing virtual conferences, but we're doing virtual conferences in a very weird situation. So you should change the style of how you you give your talk not just to the fact that it's virtual, but also to the fact that people might be like under more stress. So one of the hints is, you know, if you're making slides, make it like much more basic, like really have, you know, one take home message per slide instead of making it very busy, which you can do more easily on people in person because you're engaging the audience. But be aware that not only is it virtual and there's like limitations to how long we can concentrate virtually, but also people at this point might be like balancing child caring um, duties or, or doing other things while attending the conference so you need to kind of yeah. simplify to to get that to work yeah absolutely although i'm always camp um simplify your slides please because uh even in person i think even if you have your laser point and you can like walk people through slides to me it's already a sign of a potentially bad slide design if you have to walk people through it if they have no way of understanding it on their own i i literally cannot see laser pointers i can very rarely follow where a laser yeah. pointer is moving i don't know if i just have very i think i can't see that red color properly but i yeah just yeah. to keep in mind guys yeah so um yeah i think i didn't do anything quite as exciting as you in the last week the only exciting thing i had is um last week and the week before we were talking about this idea of of eating cassava mm -hmm. and i was saying oh i thought it had cyanide in it and it was poisonous so i was kind of looking into that and then i was thinking like 
the the area that I now live in London is really nicely multicultural and it has a lot of um, Afro-Caribbean people in in this suburb specifically and there's been a lot of like there's a lot of really cool looking restaurants related to this theme around me but of course because of COVID I haven't been going out to restaurants so um a couple of days back I ordered takeaway food from one of these restaurants and I had something that was pounded yam Mm -hmm. so it's like as you can imagine, yam that has been pounded. I think that's quite a self... <laughs> the, the, the explanation is all there. Um, and you end up with a kind of very... like It's very starchy, right? So it's this root vegetable and you kind of have this like mashed potatoes, but a little bit more solid. Um, and also a little bit more almost glutinous, a bit like stickier. And then the second thing I had was ebba. And ebba is a staple food that's eaten mostly in West African nations. So it says like Nigeria and also in Ghana. And it's from this cassava flour. So Mm. you get um, cassava, you dry it, you grate it, and you get this flour. And then you add hot water. And again, it becomes, it's it's like almost mashed potato-esque is the description, but I found it much more solid. Like it's, it's got that more polenta feel where like you eat it and it settles in your stomach, but it's also got almost a chewy feeling Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I found out after I ordered it that I did it completely wrong because it says that the normal way to do it is to kind of like pull off small bits of this this very dense dough and eat it with like a soup or a stew. Um, and I didn't order the soup or the stew. So that was my bad. <laughs> so I definitely have to try it again. But that was a really cool experience because I haven't like I'm not sure if I've eaten. I've eaten cassava chips, I think. Is that a thing? I don't know. Um, I, I I never get yeah. anything like that, unfortunately. It's just it's, it's one of those things that I'm, I'm really interested in is like different food sources which which seems to me as a really important part of our changing planet that we have to look at diversifying what we're eating and we have to diversify out the food that we eat generally but also even the food that i eat is so simple like specific compared to what's globally available and what i'm eating every day is just like completely different and it's it's really apparent that yeah i mean i'm not eating Eba or or pounded yam at any yeah. point in my life, basically. So yeah. yeah anyway, um, it's fun to try new things, but sometimes you also do them wrong, like <laughs> I did. <laughs> I think that's part of trying new things. Yeah, maybe. Shall Shall we try a new paper? Let's try. It. It's the paper of the week. And you picked a paper this week. Did I? I think you picked it. Oh yeah, so the paper of the week this week is Flowering Synchrony Drives Pollination Success in a Wind-Pollinated Species. It came out in Ecology Letters this year, 2020, and it's by Bodziewicz. I'm Bodziewicz. Hoping... I'm, I'm learning Yarm Polish, with, is learning with, Polish. With, with an app. So I, I was looking forward to like looking at a Polish name for one. <laughs> Michal uh, Bok... Uh, no, I'm saying it wrong, probably. Uh, Bodziewicz. I hope you did that right, because otherwise our Polish friend will be angry at you. Yeah, Um. rightfully so. This paper talks about um, wind-pollinated trees, and specifically a type of wind-pollinated trees that's involved in mast seeding or masting. And that's a concept that I think... I think we both wanted to talk about this for a while. I think I I first really... like my my atten- it got my attention for the first time really when we were reading the book um, braiding sweetgrass because mm-hmm. uh, in one of the chapters that um, the author talks about this mast seeding um, and what it is is this effect that some plants and especially some trees they don't produce sort of the same amount or similar amount of fruit or seeds every year but they have great variance between that and there can be 
and this like this variance can be a scale of magnitude higher so like 10 times add an extra zero is scale of magnitude 10 times higher between one year and another year which is pretty freaking significant and i would like to comment now that i feel like (laughs) sorry i think this is something that we should be teaching children in school because to me this idea it just it's so fascinating it completely captures my imagination and it's something where if an animal was doing it, we'd be like, wow, that's so cool. That's the animal, like, acting like an animal. But when plants are doing it, we're kind of just, I mean, we're not teaching. This is, it's just amazing, right? Like, Yeah, I think one of the things why we don't really perceive it is, first of all, plant blindness is something we talked about before, that we sort of take plants for granted and um, animals we're amazed by. But also that it happens on the longer time scale. It happens on a yearly time scale. And it's much harder to remember how many acorns were there last year compared to how many acorns are here now. So um, I think that makes it harder to sort of uh, notify or or see this effect happening. Because what's Mm -hmm. also happening here is that um, not only it's individual trees that do that, um, but they do this it's sort of communities as groups of trees so you don't only have like one tree that one year produces 10 times or over 10 times as many acorns as um, another, um, as in the years before but it's the entire population of trees in a synchronous mm-hmm. way and that's a really fascinating part about this because these are trees often doing this over a very long distance um, where they can't be connected through root tissue or anything where you can sort of think that they have um, a signaling network, one tree to another. Um, they're much further away than that. And still, you sort of have just a season where all of the trees in a certain sort of um, place in a certain yeah, um, I don't know what the word is, area. In a certain area, all of them suddenly have this burst of production. Um, and in the next year, all of them don't have that burst of production. They stay low together. So that's that's mass seeding or masting. It's the fact that there's variability. So some years lots and some years less. And the, the second factor of the masting is that it's synchronized across multiple trees within a population. Yeah. And this can cross entire countries, but it, but as countries are... It's not a very good measurement for for area, right? Um, Yeah, so there was like a recent publication that came out in Nature Plants, which said that at very large scales, I think it's over 2,000 kilometers distance, so it's quite large, um, there can actually be asynchrony instead of synchrony. So it's not like completely across the entire world, but yeah, it can be across across quite wide areas, this this masting effect. And when we think about why this happened or when we try to understand the biological function there have been some hypotheses what um, drives these um, drives mast seeding and one thing that I think was also mentioned in, in the book Braiding Sweetgrass and the thing that I find very intuitive is this idea of predation so predators so animals that eat the seeds um, they if, if you would all, always provide the same amount of seeds they can sort of adapt to that and the population will uh, of your predators will increase to the point that they will always eat all of the seeds um, to be sort of the most efficient. But if you change the amount that you give them, sort of, if I'm personifying here a lot, but if when the trees don't give the same amount of seeds every year and they give very little most years and then suddenly there's a burst of seeds, the predator population will not be big enough to eat all of these seeds. It will be a very good year for the predators, but still there will be many seeds that escape um, the predators and that will grow into new trees and then the pre- the predators will have a very good year 
um, they will have lots of offspring, but the next year there is not en uh, enough seeds anymore and the population will decline again. Um, and this is a mechanism that I find very intuitive um, for trees to control the, their predator population and also increase the chances that their um, seeds will actually survive and not be eaten by bugs or animals that really like to eat acorns or other like seeds and fruits of trees. And another like kind of functional reason is what's really dealt with in this paper and it's the idea of pollination. So this is that if you all poll like make flowers at the same time, especially if you're a wind pollinated tree, there's more chance that when your flowers are open, another flower nearby will be opened and you'll get pollen blown onto your flower. So if you all do it at the same time, there's more chance that the pollen can actually move from flower to flower. Um, and this seems to be like sort of supported by this idea that maybe it's mostly wind pollinated species that do mass seeding. But it could also work even if there is an actual pollinator because um, there could be a link between having a critical mass of flowers there to attract or to um, maintain a, a pollinator population or also all timing your flowers at the same time that a certain pollinator becomes available. So, for example, you can imagine like a really short-lived insect which only like comes out at a certain time. You want to make sure that you all flower when that dude's around. Yeah. The thing is that we don't really understand um, yet or we don't really know yet what drives this effect of mass seeding. We have our ideas about the biological function of it, but when it comes to actually understanding the underlying mechanisms that drive this, that get the trees in sync, that that um, yeah control all of the, the effects linked to flowering and seed development, um, there just haven't been enough exper manipulate, um, manipulative experiments that could uh, help to understand these processes. There has been a lot of observation, there has been a lot of modeling, but actual manipulation of trees happened to a much lesser extent. Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of where this paper is coming in. They want to do this like very you know, basic science where you make a change and see what happens um, to get an outcome. Uh, in any case, most of the the hypotheses behind how masting works, it's basically like the synchronicity of these trees is related to the synchronicity of their environment. So in, in a very simplified way, all of the trees are responding to the environment. And I think we'll come back to that a little bit later on. So what did the paper do, Yoram? They, um, they went to Spain, uh, which, first of all, I think <laughs> is always a good idea. Um, they went to Spain to a region near Madrid. And they um, picked a type of tree that's very common there. It's a mast seeding holm or uh, oak uh, of the species uh, Quercus uh, ilex. And um, they wanted to figure out um, if, if there is a, sort of an advantage to them to be part of the mast seeding process, so, so to be in sync with the others, or um, if there isn't an advantage and if they could come if they could sort of complement that or if they could understand more what are the limiting factors there. And in the paper, they came up with a very cool uh, methodology. So they looked at synchronously and asynchronously flowering trees of the same species, and then they provided pollen to both. So they sort of did artificial pollination, um, and then they also had some controls on there. And they did these things on um, the, the control and the pollination experiment on the same tree, which I found quite clever. They, they said, according to the literature from other experiments, we know that if you take branches that are far, far enough from each other on a tree, they act like almost being two different trees, although being on the same tree, which gives you a cool experimental <laughs> system because 
you have something no genetic with, differences yeah no genetic differences no environmental differences but still you can do two treatments um yeah i mean mm -hmm. tegan's shaking her head of course like depending on where oh, yeah, the like sun is shining speaking. um you can get some uh, some differences there but differences are smaller than if you would take a tree that's 100 meters away then you would then have to still look if if the soil is the same and so on um and then they counted uh they pollinated um, or not pollinated for the control branches, the trees. And then they just counted the amount of acorns that were produced by the tree in that season. And they did that over two years. They wanted to do it over three years, but then um, <laughs> there was a pandemic, okay. pandemic and they had to leave Spain and um, cut the experiment short. Uh, so they analyzed two years of that. So they found, um, firstly, that the synchronous flowering trees had about twice as many seeds as the asynchronous flowering. So that already indicates that if you don't get your crop together and flower at the same time, you're going to get a penalty. So when they then added the pollen to the branches of the asynchronous trees, they could remove that negative effect and um, result in more seed setting in the asynchronous trees um, than they would do without the added pollen, which shows that pollen seems to be one of the bottlenecks in the process of seed setting and um, that being asynchronous apparently to some extent um, leads to a lack of pollen available at the, at the plants, which you can then um, sort of make up for by adding a, 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 or um, artificially adding pollen. Yeah, so when they did the pollen addition to the synchronized plants, they didn't get an increase with the pollen addition. So that suggests that at that point, something else was limiting in those plants, but they didn't really go into what those other things would be. Um, so that was kind of the main findings. Apart from that, they also looked into a few other factors. So they found that conspecific density, so basically how many other trees of the same species that are hanging around in the same area and potentially trying to take the same pollen, um, that factor didn't affect the pollination success. So it wasn't about how like this this kind of competition idea. Yeah. So the main one of the, the big drivers they found was this pollen, just the pollen availability, basically. Yeah. And uh, an important thing to note here, I think, is that um, oak is um, is a plant where we are looking at fruit maturation. So um, the transition from flower to fruit is where the masting happens. Um, and that's where you need the pollen so that the, the, the flower then forms a fruit. But there's other species that also show this masting behavior, but they're flowering masting. So there's years where they don't produce any flowers and years where they produce a lot of flowers. And so in these species, um, pollination can't be the driving or one of the, the main driving forces there because pollination only becomes important after the flowers are formed. So the that shows there are more things at play here. And uh, what the researchers managed in this paper was to uncover the importance of one of potentially many factors that are at play here. Yeah, and just to note, even in this oak, which is kind of more, that has the bottleneck at the fruit maturation stage, flower production was still a key determinant of how many acorns they got. So pollination alone is definitely not explaining this entire masting effect here. Yeah. Okay, and even when you look at these different factors, so either the production of flour itself or you like, you know, the pollination, like the production of flour itself has to have something behind it. There's like environmental cues that are driving when the plant makes its flowers. 
And here are things like weather and climate take a really big role. And these can have both direct and indirect effects. So if we think of just like weather, like if it's raining, this could really affect the pollen. So if a plant releases pollen, but it's raining, all of the pollen falls to the ground. That's just a one day, a one moment event that affects the success of pollination. On the other hand, more indirectly, if it's um, been a really dry year, maybe the plant doesn't actually manage to produce as much pollen because the plant is stressed out. It doesn't have the resources. And on the other hand, um, plants are going to take cues from changing seasons and choose when to open their flowers and when to do things. So there's this big interplay of these environmental factors that actually drive this massing. Yeah, I think I think of this as sort of... Um not not exactly like a, a computer program or a robot, but it's like these trees that are have um, things that are genetically programmed in them, but they also have a lot of sensors. They they react to the environment, and mm. um, if they are in the same environment, and then it depends like how large you define this area, they will probably see the same amount of like drought or rain, um, and that can trigger that. And then there's also other things that are sort of self-regulating or self-reinforcing or self self-controlling, and this is a, the idea of resource budgets where. The, the trees, ha they have to spend energy to make their seeds and they don't have infinite energy um, and they can't do this every single year. And so when the environmental cues are right and everything works out, then they have this mass seeding effect. But if they're out of sync and they don't produce the seeds, that means that in this year they don't spend the energy and then they keep the energy for next year and maybe next year they get better in sync with the other trees. And then when several of these factors come together, like good environment, um, enough pollination happening, being in sync with the others, then they have the energy to spend to, to make these acorns um, and be part of this wave of mast seeding. Um, and I think clever is always a weird word for, <laughs> because it's so anthropomorphizing. Clever girl. But I, um, I think this is a very elegant idea um, that we have this sort of internally controlled system um, just through the energy budget. Not alone through the energy budget, but that takes part in it. That um, whenever you're out of sync, you store energy, and once you get in sync, you have the energy to play with the others. I think that's the main take-home points of the paper. So, um, just to say again, the title: this paper is released in Ecology Letters this year. It's called "Flowering Synchrony Drives Pollination Success in Wind in a Wind Pollinated Tree," um, and you should definitely go and check out the paper. And uh, one thing that I want to mention before we move on to the next thing is that while I was um, looking at the paper and uh, the first author, I stumbled across their um, personal website and I thought that was a very great example of how researchers um, can be present online and help people like us science communicators to talk about their research. Because Michal, um, they have their, their website where they first of all link out to all the relevant sources like ResearchGate and Google Scholar. And on ResearchGate, you can get um, the, the paper for free to, to read the full text. But also um, on the personal website, there are sort of behind the scenes of the paper. And I quite looking, I liked looking at the, the photos where it showed them um, doing the experiment and having like a small child with them, like something that you would never see through the lens of a mm. paper that, I mean, these are people, these are people with families and being in in Spain and performing research over a long period 
uh, on these trees requires support from your family and they brought their kid along and um, I just enjoyed seeing that in there sort of as a little side note and to make that whole thing a little bit more personal um, and to see the people there and I would just encourage anyone who's listening who's also a researcher to look, look into how to set up a personal website it doesn't always have to be complicated there's plenty of ways where you can sort of use service providers to host it but it helps so much if you google the name of the author and you come across such a website where you then have everything combined like a list of publications a cv some behind the scenes uh, images i think that's a great way for sort of personal um i don't really like the word of like personal brand but it's um, a personal presentation online that makes it easier for mm. science communication people like us but also maybe like employers and so on to learn more about you and to be more interested in the stuff that i you mean do. anyone who wants to get in contact with you right it's yeah. nice to i mean often you see a name on a paper and you you can't necessarily like make the link of all of them together i mean there's there's ways that are helping that now with like orc ids and stuff like this but it's good to have that collection all there and you can kind of get a really easy overview and i have to say research grade is great for getting free papers but i find it very hard to navigate to understand what somebody's doing in their research and like how that's changed throughout the years so this kind of website is just yeah really helpful yeah um so yeah uh, everything will be linked in the, the show notes a link to the paper to the research gate link and also the personal website where you can see the behind the scenes of the paper this is where the fun begins you this is where the fun begins you this is where the fun begins yeah i think the first thing we have to talk about today um is the big news that were presented today or, or actually the last couple of days. In the last week, yeah. Um, as it is tradition in, I think, the second week of October, um, the Nobel Prizes have been awarded. Day by Yay. day, um, they are announcing the winners in the different categories. Um, and we had already um, the Physics Prize, uh, where I guess we can t t uh, say a lot about um, the work there. Uh, it, was, it went to Roger Penrose, Reinhard Genzel and Andrea Gitz. Um, for the discovery of the black hole at the center of our galaxy, which is absolutely our topic. We can tell you everything <laughs> about their research. I think Andrea, I think though Andrea is only the fourth woman to win the Nobel Prize in physics ever. Is that the right number? I don't it's know, but it sounds not very correct. Many. Um, from <laughs> judging from all I know. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, the physics prize um, about astrophysics. Um, as I, yeah, we can't really say anything here. Uh, in medicine, it went to Harvey Alter, Michael uh, Hutton, and Charles Rice, um, three men that worked on um, hepatitis C, and they discovered the virus that's responsible for this disease, um, which is... And I have... Oh. No, um, it's sort of topical this year, right? Uh, virus research. I don't want to say that this is why they were awarded the prize. I think they um, very likely did very important work there. But viruses seem to have the spotlight this year. Um, yeah, and I wanted to make a comment there because um, Michael Horton is is one of the three Nobel Prize winners. And previously in 2013, he's actually declined other prizes. So um, Canada has a Gardner, Gardner Award, I guess, um, which is kind of a similar, very high profile prize. And he actually declined to take that because he wanted that the award recognized other collaborators who worked on the same project so specifically Kui Lim Chu and George Koo who were like very much involved in this discovery 
um, were not recognized either. And this is kind of a larger discussion that a lot of the these prestigious awards follow the noble category where there's only three scientists who get recognized each time. It's, it's three. Three is the number. Um, and that's not very applicable anymore for current research. And in this situation, you often get a situation, uh, the, the scenario where the senior scientist gets the recognition, but the, the, the more junior scientist who was actually doing the lab work, like running the experiments, is is then left off because of this limitation. And this is yeah. something that he has previously spoken out about and has even, yeah, declined an award um, with quite a lot of prize money, like 75,000 US dollars prize. Not not something to sneeze at um, yeah. because of this issue. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's it's good that these things at least now there is I think every year there's this discussion about like correct attribution of recognition um, through these prizes. It's not um, I think it feels a little bit like it's it, it fell out of time this prize, this idea of having these very few individuals, but at least it's mentioned now pretty much whenever um, the prizes are discussed that it's probably not only the people who are named there, but um, a, a much larger group effort that actually led to the and discovery. I mean, the argument is also that just because Noble does it this way, which is, I mean, it's based on a guy setting something up when he died. So maybe that's harder to change. It's kind of like a, related to death wishes and stuff. But that doesn't mean that everybody else should follow that as the way to do things. So if countries have their own national prizes or whatever, it doesn't have to just be three people. It doesn't have to be people who have not died and all of these yeah. particular rules. And today there was the big news that was very exciting to uh, to anyone who works in molecular biology, um, because the Nobel Prize for Chemistry went to Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna or Doudna. I'm never sure how to pronounce the O U in the uh, in the name. I always seen it just written. So I'm sorry, um, but uh, Emmanuel Charpentier and Jennifer Doudna got it for the development of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Wood, wood. which is something we talked a lot about uh, i think on a podcast and i talk about it constantly when I, ca I when i can't think about anything to write for for the blog i write about crispr um because i think it's just a very cool method and it will be something that will stay with us for a long time in terms of um an enabling technology and it's really cool that these two researchers um were awarded this prize yeah and emmanuel um, Charpentier has become a max planck director mm -hmm. in berlin since making the discovery, so after this CRISPR-Cas, I mean, obviously they're still working on CRISPR-Cas9, but since then, um, and <laughs> Max Planck tweeted just like a stream of smiley faces, like it's just like emojis, but also most of the emojis were the upside down smiley face, which I always thought was like when you're like doing that awkward face, it's kind of to like, me, it's when you're like I'm not smiling in pain when you're like giving the thumbs up. Yeah, like, exactly. You break it's your like, leg and you're like, great. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's either sarcastic or kind of like. Yeah. Eh. So I think whoever's tweeting <laughs> needs to check their smiley, like their emoji lexicon. <laughs> Maybe just. At least they but didn't. That was very cute. That was very adorable. At least they didn't post like eggplants and peaches. Um, that's always awkward when brand accounts do that and have no idea about the connotation of these emoji. I mean, I I am now at the stage where I'm like, I should just really Google everything before I communicate with anyone online because I don't. I'm not up to date with the new lingo and the new everything. Yeah. So this year we have five men and three women in the natural sciences that were awarded, which I think for the Nobel Prize is a fairly good ratio. Um, Sounds good. But for, um, yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a debate that usually every year we have. 
um, about the representation and and uh, inclusivity of of this prize. And I always, I think we we always we already ranted about it last year with the literature prize. Yeah, we we did yeah. that rant. Go and check our backlog if you want to hear yeah. that rant. I one thing is there, um, or two things that I want to to talk about, which is the the representation of plants in the Nobel Prizes because I saw somewhere someone on Twitter like summarizing all the amazing viro virologists who were awarded Nobel Prizes and um, they conveniently left out the very first um, Nobel Prize for viro virology in 1946 um, when Wendell M. Stanley was awarded the prize for the isolation and properties of crystalline tobacco mosaic virus. So one of the very first viruses studied ever um, in molecular biology Uh, was actually a plant virus, was a tobacco virus, and that's very often sort of looked past these uh, these days. When when looking at the history in the, in the Nobel Prize, we we tend to overvalue um, sort of human research and viruses in in human disease or animal disease. Um, but yeah, but actually, there is also a very important plant science awarded, uh, and there's an article. It's called No No Nobel. Uh, it's on Nature. <laughs> Um, nature plants. That, It's specifically on, yeah, nature, on plants. nature plants, where they talk about um, the occasions when um, plant scientists were actually awarded Nobel prizes, uh, Nobel prizes, and it's quite interesting read. Um, it's it's not a very long list, um, but it's interesting. There's things like the Calvin cycle, the the um, uh, the Mr. called Calvin with his last name. I forgot his first name. Um, yeah, after whom the Calvin cycle is named, which is a very important um, molecular reaction in in plant cells. Um, and that yeah, so that's the dark reactions in in plant cells. So all the um, biochemistry that happens when the lights are turned off and the plant then sort of burns through the storage molecules that um, they accumulated in the light. Um, so yeah, so have a, have a look at that if you are into plant stuff and you want to see how plants were represented in the Nobel Prize decisions. Nature has a news feature that came out on the 5th of October, which is a four-year timeline of Trump's impact on science. See if you can guess if that's been a positive or a negative impact. Hmm. But I would strongly encourage you to go and read that just as a reminder of all of the things. All of them. Yeah, I think like I think these things serve to me, especially the purpose of having um, arguments when people come come up. Uh, I mean, I'm in Germany, so I we don't actually have Trump supporters, but I ran occasionally into people that were like, oh, Trump wasn't that bad. Um, he's just stirring the pot and um, creating drama." And these lists really help to to say like, "No, it's not just stirring drama." We can play it as a game and you can go into the list and pick which one you think hurts the most like for me i would say the climate change stuff that's the one that really sticks um not just because like professional interest but because that just seems so horrible although also like breaking up with the world health organization not super great in a pandemic um go have a look Go make a choice. Um, oh, so many things or that, don't I look. that I forgot, like the Sharpie gate, when he just took a, a map from the oh, weather yeah. service and used a Sharpie to extend it. So it September so, 2019. So, so it fits with the things that he said before. Um, so he, he, he shaped the data to, to fit his narrative instead of adapting the stuff he says to the actual data. Um, yep. 
go go look at that guys go go have <sighs> anyway um yeah yeah i think i i don't really want to comment too much on the covid stuff like we don't wish anybody gets covid yeah. or is like personally i don't don't wish that um yeah and i think the problem with the scenario is like everything that's going to happen is going to be what is it's everything is the worst case scenario as far as i can tell yeah. in my very pessimistic mood about this so we're going to move on and Yoram's going to tell a fun fact yes um uh, I, I want to talk about herbaria. I think that's the cor- correct plural, if I remember my Latin class. The plural of a herbarium. Um, so a collection <laughs> if of If I plants. remember my Latin it's class. Not, yeah, yes. when, I, when I was there with oh. all my posh friends. Um, uh, so the collections of plants, and uh, often historical collections of plants, they only increase in value. And not only because it's just old stuff and old stuff gets more value, um, but um, because we get better at analyzing um, samples, especially old samples. And um, specifically, I want, uh, I, I mean um, our ability to analyze DNA data. Um, and that's what's uh, something that helped us nowadays. Researchers took samples from a 167-year-old grass sample from a grass species that's now extinct, and they could actually reconstruct its genome and use that to... Um, um, in, increase the quality of our phylo, phylogenetic trees and these are sort of the, the relationship trees of um, species so how closely related they are to, to each other and there are some things where we have very clear understanding of but very often we have sort of multiple possibilities and we have to do educated guesses or gather a lot of evidence to decide which one of the possibilities is correct and this um, experiment here helped to, to settle one of these sort of open questions and to to increase the quality of this phylogenetic tree by sampling these old um, herbarium sam- sample. And in the article that uh, that we're linking, they say that these things like we will be, will happen more and more. The better we get with our uh, analyt- analytical technologies, the more we can actually take advantage of samples that were taken over a uh, hundred or two hundred years ago um, and get new knowledge from them today, uh, even though they're so very old, or especially because they're so very old. Uh, my f- next fact has absolutely nothing to do with plants, um, but it does have something to do with puffins, Yay. Uh, which is <laughs> one of your arm's favorite things. Is this an article that I saw? It's it's on CNN. I'm not sure. Is that reliable? Um, get back to me on that. <laughs> but the title is... <laughs> Um, by learning to think like a puffin, this conservationist has saved seabirds around the world. Mm-hmm. And it's got a short video, and I just like the idea that you have to think like a puffin. That's pretty much my entire interest. Are we doing um, that all right now? I th- to me, puffins, they're always, they look so concerned. And I think, yeah, mildly concerned. I think concern <laughs> is sort of the, the emotion of 2020. Yeah, so basically his his idea was that um in in Maine, so in the the north eastern coast, I want to say of the US, um there was puffins who used to come to certain nesting grounds and they just stopped coming. Um and he he was like, "Well, puffins are pretty social birds. I wouldn't go to a party if like I opened the door and there was nobody in there. So to get more puffins, we need to have puffins. Like this mm-hmm. is the standard, I don't know, economic problem that we have with puffins is that to get puffins, you need puffins. Um, but he got the a shortcut. The problem is he with the started... people who inherit puffins. They have much easier <laughs> started life to get more puffins. puffins. <laughs> While other people, they want to get puffins, but they don't have any. And so puffins don't stay with them. 
<laughs> they must be lazy. Um, so this guy, to get more puffins, he literally just started making puffins. Um, not in the creepy way you might think. He just made like um, wooden puffins or yeah, fake puffin decoys. And he just put a ton of fake puffins on the rocks. And apparently it worked. Apparently puffins flying over the rocks were like, oh yeah, that looks like a good spot. And just flew down and started <laughs> camping. Which, yeah. If, if I imagine I go to a party, you just said like you want to go to a party where there's people, but imagine there's you have the choice between a party where there's no one or a party where there's just like mannequins play throughout the, the flat. And I would definitely go to the no one party. The mannequins are creepy. But also, I mean, if I go to the party and I get there and there's no food or wine or toilet facilities and I was lured into there by fake people, that's terrible. I, I, I wasn't really sure how this works because surely at some point a bird is choosing the spot because it's a good spot and then the younger birds might be following the older wiser birds who know where the spots are but if the younger birds are now just following the less old less wise puffin models like the mannequins maybe those spots are just not good spots i didn't really understand how that worked in any case it's very cute um there are videos of puffins flapping their wings um there are also images of a man painting a lot of puffin dolls so if you want to smile go look at puffins that's that's my my take-home message (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's that's very good take-home message um i found the explanation i personally did the research you know i found somebody else who did the research on the um ages old question why does salted caramel taste so very good um this is research where they investigated the link between salt and sugar and why we perceive sugar uh, or sugary food as sweeter when salt is added to it. Because it doesn't make intuitive sense, um, especially from what we knew about uh, the receptors for sweetness. We have some receptors in, in our mouth um, that can um, bind to the glucose molecules, the sugar molecules, and um, then they send a signal and then we taste sweet. Uh, and they can also bind to other like sweetener molecules and so on. That's how artificial sweeteners work. Um, but there is no salt um, in this relationship. So the researchers found an, uh, another protein, um, a sodium and glucose co-transporter protein, SGLT1. Um, and sodium is a part of salt. And then they did experiments on mice where they gave sugar and salt solutions and then measured the neuronal activity of mice um, that were sedated and also gave them sugar and salt water um, and just sugar water alone and see which one they preferred. And they all went, or they they preferred um, the salt um, sugar. And this gives us a new um, idea about how we taste sweetness, that there's sort of this uh, uh, additional pathway of um, tasting tasting sweet things that's in this case linked to also salt and the idea is and then this is just a hypothesis this is not something that we can easily prove um as this might have evolved to help us find high calorie foods um because um these ways we can taste sweetness then they sweetness is then linked to glucose which is linked to high calories um and apparently the salt helps us to distinguish specific kinds of food. Although they didn't go into details why you would find sort of salty sugar Blood? in in the wild um, where that could evolve. I, Maybe. I, do, I do remember reading um, like years and years ago but, about how 
people were trying to see they discovered that animals have this natural ability to find high calories over short periods of time even when there's no taste associated so there's like they were feeding i think it was shrews or like some some really small mouse like thing they were feeding two diets that theoretically tasted identical i always wondered if they just didn't know how shrews tasted things properly um but one of them had more calories even though they had the same taste and the shrews after like a few tries would like consistently go for the high calorie food which you know makes a lot of evolutionary sense but they couldn't really explain how the shrews knew to go there I have something that I found on YouTube, um, which is it was quite from quite an old paper, but it's really again triggering my fear in corvid birds. So it's about Australian magpies, and if you've ever been to Australia, you'll know that Australian magpies are vicious and cruel. And during the breeding sequence, they season they they really like swooping people, so they just like fly at your face um, to try and discourage you from coming in their nesting area. And it's it's legitimately vicious. You should definitely go and look up magpie swooping um, on YouTube. But there was a study that came out in 2017, so a while back now, which basically showed that cognitive performance, so like intelligence of the birds, is also linked to how big the gang that the bird has is, so their their group size, and it also affects how well the females reproduce. So basically, the smarter birds have bigger gangs and make more babies, which presumably makes even smarter birds with bigger gangs and more babies. So I think this is very clear that there's like already a self like reinforcing process and we're eventually going to end up with super we probably already have super birds that's the take-home message super magpies okay tegan um you always bring the very fun stuff with now like corvids uh, magpies breeding to be become evil super birds um but i uh that's a very good segue actually to my cat fact of today which doesn't feature many cats um some cats are featured in there though um, and it's something that i only discovered uh, recently although i have to say that um, this is already a little bit older this is from 2018 or 2019 um, and it's about the comedy wildlife photography awards um, something i didn't know uh, about before and it's just a bunch of fun pictures of wild animals um, and and the winners in different ca- uh, categories um, the the winning prize is of um i think a lion cub playing with the testicles of its parent um in in an in an image that's just like seconds before catastrophe um and i encourage you all if you need to have a, a chuckle and want to see something relaxing and fun and harmless for a change go look at the comedy wildlife photo um Uh, award um, pictures we linked them both from 2018 and 2019 we linked them in the show notes and there's just like a couple of very fun images of animals in all sorts of poses um, it's very cute sometimes just individual animals sometimes with several species together um, it's it's very good and while you look at that you can also um, follow us on all of the social media on facebook and instagram you can talk to me it's at plants pipettes on twitter you can talk to me that's at plants uh, at plants pipettes um we also have a website it's www.plantsandpipettes.com and there we tend to publish things like twice a week and this week yoram did a really cool article about figs and then we also had a repost about things that turn the snow blood red so check those out 
uh, we are always very happy to hear from you if you have any feedback any questions any comments about the things that we say um, send them our way um, somebody notified us that the comment form wasn't working um, I, sh I think I fixed that now so let me know if um, my fix doesn't work I, <laughs> then I need to do something else but please um, test our comment function by leaving a nice comment on, on, under this episode but you can also send us emails or reach out over social media Yeah, but don't comment on the fact that Yarm sounds German when he speaks, because as it turns out, Yarm is German, and I have very little sympathy for that kind of comment. That's that's not cool, guys. Like, to comment that somebody is speaking their second language in a way that you're not pleased with, like, no, get a life. Not cool. <laughs> Thank I'm so you. not okay with that. Thank you for having my back on this one. Um, then I can... No, I, I won't do a German accent now. I'm too tired for that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like a more German uh, accent, I should say. <laughs> as it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Also, the, the, the comment about Yoram's language also involved a comment about me teaching him the language. And I was like, you can, you've heard me speak. You know that I am not the person to be teaching English to anyone. That's a terrible, terrible idea. All he will learn is bad Australian English, how to say like a lot, and probably how to swear more. So, Yeah. Not ideal. Um, yeah, so so check that out. Subscribe to our podcast. Rate us wherever you can rate podcasts uh, on iTunes or I think there's probably a ton of other places by now that all have their own rating system. Um, rate us there. It helps us find new listeners and tell friends and family and whoever you, you think might like this sort of show, tell them about this. Um, yeah. And our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And at the end of this show, you will hear um, a trailer for a different show. Um, we're doing sometimes a sort of trailer exchange. So check out that other show that's called The Lonely Pipette, um, which they didn't steal from us, I hope. But if they did, yeah, I'm that's very good. Didn't. It's a very good choice of... Uh, you can't Steve. say that. <laughs> And they they, they okay. just started. I think it's a really cool um, interview podcast. They just started. So um, have a listen. Give them some love. Um, it's always cool when you just begin with a new project if people come along. And um, yeah, actually listen to it and enjoy it and leave feedback. So please do that. Um, you will hear the, uh, the trailer after we stop talking. And that's now. Bye. Bye. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Lonely Pipette. Helping scientists do better science. Yeah.